This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. We talk about inspiration a lot here on Revision Path. So I wanted to ask product designer Earl Carlson what inspires him. Honestly, anything that's not on a screen, I'm on a screen most of my day. So whenever I'm not at work, I'm looking for things that are well-designed or really thoughtful outside of a screen, real experiences with other humans, real experiences with other people's works, etc. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, Buffer has a remote position available for a product engineer. Vox Media is looking for a visuals editor for Curved at their New York City office. Cast Inc. is looking for an interaction and UI designer in Wakefield, Massachusetts. Fall Creek Software is looking for a design engineer for Glitch, either in their New York office or remotely. Cactus Group is looking for a web designer. And Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts is looking for a senior designer. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash job to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts when there are new positions added to the job board. You'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I want to talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. Whether you're into design, coding, music, or art, Glitch is the right tool for you. Start from scratch or remix any of the available projects and make them your own. And if you get stuck, just raise your hand and get help from the Glitch community. Get started on making something awesome today at Glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. Again, that's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. Did you know that the number one email marketing priority is personalization? I mean, it makes sense if you think about it. You know, you really only want to hear from the people and businesses that you like. And MailChimp helps make that happen with their robust campaign builder and a host of helpful automations. It's email marketing with a personal touch. Sign up at MailChimp.com today for a free account. MailChimp. Send better email. Also, this is April. And like we do every year in April, we have our annual audience survey. So if you go to revisionpath.com forward slash survey, takes about five to 10 minutes to complete this year for our fifth anniversary. One lucky survey respondent is going to win a $500 Amazon.com gift card. Again, one lucky survey respondent will win a $500 Amazon.com gift card. 
All you have to do is fill out the survey, revisionpath.com forward slash survey. That survey is going to end on April the 30th. So go ahead and make sure you take it. We want to hear from you. We'd love to get your feedback. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking to Eddie Opara, a partner at Pentagram. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hello, my name is Eddie Opara. I am a graphic designer and I am a partner at uh, Pentagram, New York. Now, I'm sure for listeners, they have heard of Pentagram uh, in terms of the types of projects that you all have done. Can you kind of give me an idea of what's a typical day like for you at Pentagram? I mean, it always changes. So I I don't know if I have a typical day. I, I, I try to. So, you know, I get into the office and um, I try not to try not to focus my attention first on emails. I've, I've already gone through emails at home on the train and uh, I might just, you know, type one uh, when I'm in. And then I go and see the designers, my design team. We try to, you know, focus on what we need to achieve for that particular day, whether there is a a big presentation on that day. Normally there is a presentation every sort of two to three days with clients. And so that's, that's my sort of main aim. And then if there's sort of longer projects that don't need so many meetings with clients, um, I sit down right next to the designers and uh, we discuss what uh, we're doing as a as a normal you know creative head you know I'm, I'm not saying that i'm strange i also like to interject my ideas by just moving my designers to the side and actually i start to create on the screen right in front of them so if they're having let's say not so much issues but you know certain aspects aren't aren't uh, are correct, uh, I basically um, interact and seed and uh, start to work on those particular issues. You know, sometimes I sketch the, uh, the designs out. That's definitely there. I have my notebook. But, you know, I, I can't help myself but to actually, you know, grab them, <laughs> grab the mouse and the keyboard and go at it. Or, you know, the old-fashioned way of, like, just printing it out, cutting it up, and then uh, putting it back together again. Yeah, depending on what medium that we're in. So you really get hands-on with the design. That's that's really good. I mean, I think based on the, the size of the team that you have, that can be really beneficial. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I've only had one designer that really didn't like it. <laughs> I, I said, tough. He wanted me to, uh, you know, relay it to him verbally. And I was like, yeah, I can relay up to a particular point, but I'm actually going to have to visually create or you know draw this out if i sketch it out that's that's one thing you may interpret it in in multiple ways but if i actually start the whole process or you can see how i'm actually creating this so uh it helps i mean fundamentally majority of my designers and the other designers right now do like that they're totally fine with it how do you end up approaching new projects i know that pentagram does a lot of different types of work but Generally, what's your process when approaching a new project? You know, I, I have um, specific sort of methodologies that I like to, you know, utilize. But, you know, at first, when you're writing an SOW, of course, in, in all honesty, when you get into the project, part of those things are, are sort of chucked out and, and or, or readdressed. Let's put it that way. They're sort of readdressed. 
and, and also the scheduling is also readjusted because of the, because those items are readdressed. So at first, you know, it, it's it's primarily making sure that we're, and this might sound quite commonplace, but you know, talking to the uh, the stakeholders, making sure that all stakeholders are, are spoken to. So there's nothing worse than actually having a client that is hiding somebody behind uh, another door because either they don't like that person or or they don't really care about that person, as in like they're not part of the process, or they just say, well, this is the, the process that we have, and he or she doesn't want to be bothered. And I'm like, no, especially if that he or she is the main uh, the main person in charge. And so uh, I find that to be absolutely detrimental to the process if there's uh, a person or people that are not part of, that are really key and not are part of the process. There's one thing that I like and also my other partners in the room really like is that we need to talk to the executives. We need to talk to maybe even who, who owns that particular company even if it's incredibly uh, incredibly big company, we don't care. It's an important factor because it's really their voices that control how the brand or identity or and personality and character really works, really resonates, and others listen. And that's a really really important factor. So that's up first. Once we've got that sewn down we start to move into a, a process of, of our sketching and discovery, a uh, sense of research. And the way that we do that uh, in presentations to relate to a client is really important. We, we, show, we try to show our research in a, in a way where uh, it's, it's a little bit like uh, building blocks. You're not telling a story. One of the things I don't like is to tell stories for a client. I may tell a story in a particular presentation in a large audience. That's always very nice. But I find them fundamentally flawed and overly not rational enough. I don't believe I'm a storyteller. And I like systems. And, and, uh, and I believe in building different types of frameworks. And that's what we're, we're trying to do. We're, we're researching to develop frameworks that are incredibly flexible for the client to utilize in any which way they they want and that's incredibly key so the way that we sort of break down our presentations are, are, are very very important and it's like a brick by brick system or it's an or what we call an equation that we we create an equation that that will always give you a solution a a, a firm solution or multiple solutions whether it be an algorithm that generates different things so it's like a visual algorithm that you know in, in our mind I'm not saying that we're coding this thing, we're just building it in a particular way that relays different structures that the, the client can actually utilize. And so from those particular solutions or scenarios, one can um, build a bigger, better identity or, or brand or design UI, UX system, you know, whatever you want, environmental, space, everything. That's a really interesting sort of concept in terms of how you approach projects. It's almost in a very kind of logical, mathematical way. I feel like a lot of what I hear from designers about how they approach new projects is about telling stories, you know, kind of weaving this tale to the client to kind of get them in the right mindset, as opposed to what you're saying is you give them kind of a 
tools in a way to let them iterate on concepts to create a lot of different end results. That's correct. You know, if you, you stepped into sort of this huddle room with me and, and my, my designers, you'll find that I often use the term, I, I often use the term narrative, not so much storytelling, because some people really want to hear that. But majority of the time, it's really more me saying, you know, storytelling to me is, is a fictional aspect. It's like you're telling it to a bunch of children. Your client is not a child. You're also trying to do it for suspense or drama. That's not the case in point. This is not a TV show. And also, if you're doing that, how flexible is the end result over again and again and again and again? So do you have to keep rebuilding this thing? You know, do you have to keep on creating different storylines? So it's, you know, so it's like, uh, you know, general hospital, (laughs) (laughs) an afternoon drama no i mean that's that's that shouldn't be the case in point i think it's more the the term storytelling that is amicable for people to to understand but to me i don't honestly believe it it is especially in this uh, in this world that we live in it's all digital digitally minded Uh, and so if you start looking into sort of very clear aspects and uh, rationales of, of how to code you know the fundamentals are, are like you have methods, you know, Boolean statements, and repetition, repeat modes. If you look at something like a Boolean, if-then propositions, that's an important factor because if you run a design through that, it's like, okay, we designed this, but if this occurs, then it needs to do this, you know? And so there's a, there's a clear rationale because that's the question that the client's going to ask you. Mm-hmm. They're going to ask you, well, that's all well and true, Eddie, but if we apply it to this, don't you think that's going to occur? And you need to be ahead of the curve with that, you know, with them. You need to, and that's the great thing about the fundamentals of understanding just simple computer science or, you know, or, or just logic. It's basically logic. And I think we don't use logic as much as we should in design. Uh, and we, we take it for, for granted. Uh, it's, it, it's in the back of our minds. And we should look at it more and more. Interesting. That kind of hit the, the math part of me. My background is actually in math. Uh, I studied, that's what my degree is in before I went into design. So that part about really approaching things logically and systematically, I really like that approach. That, that sounds really good. And then, you know, people may say, well, you know, design is an applied art. So the, the highlighting term is art. It's a creative endeavor. And it's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But so is, so is uh, computer science as well. It's a creative endeavor. And so we're not saying that every single time you're designing everything like a, like a robot, you know, <laughs> without a soul or heart or, you know, or any character. No, absolutely not. You, you're, you're applying that. And that's another layer that you bring uh, bring about. But you have to make, this is the hard thing about design and or parts of graphic design or even architecture and, and industrial design, is that you, you've got to put those two elements to, together, the sense of logic and art or logic and creativity, and punch it. And that is a very difficult thing to do, especially in a day and age where every millisecond we look at a new thing and then favorite it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's it. You know, so... How much did we really get out of that design? You know, oh, it just looked good. You know, yeah. Does it really work? Does it really 
solve particular things. And it, it's really difficult to define these days. So, yeah, yeah. Now, Pentagram works with a lot of different clients across a number of different fields, of course, design, but also technology. You've worked with nonprofits, with education, with hospitality, et cetera. What are the best types of clients for Pentagram? Like, what are the best types that you work with? I think this is a very sort of box answer, fortunately. I think we're pluralists. We don't have a single way of seeing things, a single, single world, and thus we should never have a single way of picking or, or being selected for a project um, for a particular client set. So that range is incredibly important for the diversity and the, you could say, the dynamics of how Pentagram works. Um, so yes, you know, we have this ability to do something for a large corporation an enormous corporation, and then we have the ability to go all the way down to the lowest point and be for that smaller personality, that one person that's come to us and said, you know, I've got this really great idea, I, uh, I really like uh, how our program works, it's a non-profit organization that I'm trying to build, can you help us? And we will look at it, we'll assess it, we don't pick everybody. Trust me, um, we're not like that. <laughs> and we assess it. With, you know, and and it's, it's rare, but like yeah, we, we we will take it on. And we have, and and normally it's connected to what that partner is interested in, mm-hmm. and then actually everything sort of in between. So we don't discriminate at all. And I think that's what makes us pretty special at the, such a scale of being sort of like the in, largest independent design firm in the world. You know, a lot of people will say, well, we just don't have time to do that. And then, oh, there's, there's no money in that. Um, no, we, we don't. We look at it as an, a golden opportunity to to crack our knuckles and say, okay, we're going to create something that nobody's really ever seen before uh, with you. But at the same time, we want the client to be okay with that and, and accept it and uh, be open. And, and that's really important. And trust me, sometimes the smaller organizations that we have, the smaller organization that you have, is a lot harder than the bigger organization. I mean, it's, should you be surprised? It's like, why is this taking so long? <laughs> <laughs> so that, you know, that's why we're, we have to be quite selective. Yeah. So I know when a lot of people talk to you, you know, I've done my research for, for this interview. And I feel like when a lot of people talk to you, they always talk to you about, what it's like at Pentagram. I want to know more about the Eddie Opara before Pentagram. Let's go back a little bit. I'm really curious to know about your time in London in the 90s. Uh, you went to the London College of Printing, uh, part of the University of Arts London. What was that time like for you? Well, I was 91. Born and bred Londoner. I always thought that London would be the place where I... I you know, I'd die, you know, be born and die and get married. I didn't think, um, you know, further afield, even though I always understood that traveling for what I do is going to be important and seeing different things was going to be important to me. But when I got to college, I didn't have what you call a foundation uh, diploma. So I came straight from, from school, my A-levels, and jumped a year into the degree. Normally, you, 
you have to, in, in the British system, take the uh, foundation course. Everybody does, no matter what, you, you know, where you're coming from. And I was, uh, you know, I felt as though I was very lucky to do that. And they, they probably saw something in, in, in me there. I was on a course called media production design. Not, I do not have a degree, an undergrad degree, that is, in graphic design. And media production design is pretty much graphic design, but it's, it's, it's also dealing with art direction and to be an art, dire- art director and the production of those elements and, and in different media. And so I really enjoyed it. At first, when I got there, I think there was about six to eight of us were black you know, out of 80 to 100, which was really quite high for being in Britain, trust me. <laughs> Even though you're sort of like, oh, Gordon Bennett, you know, uh, yet again, another a place where we were a rarity. And the majority of us stuck together, which was fantastic in the whole course of, of graphic design and media production design, because they were two, they, were, they put us together with the graphic design course. You know, we, we really we loved it and it made some really a long time, you know, lifetime friends out of that course. And one thing that sort of changed, actually two things that changed my life there was when I met in my first year, when I met a man called Nick Bell, who uh, is a very well-known graphic designer in, in London. And, um, you know, I was super amazed at the things that he was uh Creating, he used to be the creative director of I Magazine, which is a, a very sort of high-end graphic discourse magazine that comes out of London. And I uh, eventually actually became one of, I think, his first assistant just for a summer. That was, and um, he, you know, just the way he worked was impressive. The way he taught it was impressive. The way he sort of relayed information, and I, he he wasn't around for long. Really, he was only around for that that term. And uh, for me, but he made an enormous impression on, on the way I would sort of see the world or wanted to see the world. And then the second was in my third year, I left Britain to um, and ventured over 30 minutes by plane to the Netherlands to, to live for about three, four months in Utrecht to go to school there, to live there, soak it all up. And at the time, I, you know, when I got to my third year, I hadn't really designed much. You know, I spent a couple of things here and there. I had this enormous sketchbook of ideas, and concepts, and it was all process. And I, I kind of love process. I love talking about process uh, in sort of an artistic kind of manner and also in a logical manner. And I, uh, I find that to be very arresting. And, but the teachers didn't. <laughs> <laughs> You're in trouble. You're having issues. You got you got to design something. You got to finish something. Eddie. And so I left for a few months. And Holland has a an impressive design culture. Mm-hmm. If you have been, it just oozes from every sort of orifice of that country. And when I was there, I sort of met some one or two of my heroes. One being a man called Gerd Dunbar, who. Uh, at the time ran Studio Dumbo, one of the most prolific designed boutiques in, in the world. Uh, done amazing, impressive work uh, for many years. And, uh, you know, he talked to me just for maybe an hour, two hours. And it was just his impression and look, and uh, and being in his studio, talking to his designers, 
that I was sort of hooked in regards to how to design and how to deal with certain things. Just it just it doesn't take long. Uh, I was super excited, you know, and and then I went to another studio after that, and I talked to them for the rest of the day. I was super excited. I wanted to live in in Holland, mm-hmm. and so I was gearing up to actually get my internships to be in in Holland and and potentially work or live there for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, I was like, well, oh, screw London for. <laughs> um, but it didn't happen that way. And so I, I returned to London after my my time there. And, and you know, I was going into my fourth year, and I needed to needed to work, and I just started to execute. I, I couldn't stop executing work, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. from my concepts. And it just kept on uh, coming and coming, and I was really excited. I really did need that. And then I uh, I, I started thinking, you know, I started to uh, get more interested in computers and computer science to a certain degree. And I didn't think I was ready to go to, into the outside world to get a job and um, before my degree was going to end. So I started to apply to uh, colleges. I only applied to two, actually, the Royal College of Art in London and uh, Yale University in Connecticut. And uh, Royal College, I applied for computer-related design, which was entirely different from graphic design. I really wanted to go into a different area. But Yale, Yale basically said, we have a lot of things you can do, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's a plethora of things, you know, from computer-related items and um, all the way over to standard book design, as in making those particular books. And, and I, I was, like, I'm pretty impressed. I was put on the wait list. I actually didn't I didn't get in to, to Royal College. Uh, I was big gutted by that. I was sort of put on a sort of, sort of wait list. But I got into Yale. Um, and at the time I was still sort of huffing and puffing and angry that I didn't get to the Royal College of Art, uh, which is incredibly prestigious back home. But, uh, you know, my, my father and my mother say, like, but you've gone into Yale. That's really, really great. So I said to myself, okay, yeah, you know, let's, you know, I've never been to America before. And this is 1994. Okay. Like yeah. Five. Yeah. 95. I got to Yale and I was super homesick. I, I, I hated it. First year, understand <laughs> it. I couldn't quite understand the the process of of teaching. It was more so about you being an author, as in like looking in, in, internally towards yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, design normally is like you're designing for an audience, or you're designing for a particular set of people, and then you're solving certain issues, here, challenges that are in front of you. No, the challenge basically is you. So looking, you know, it, it's like an introspective type of attitude that you're sort of creating your own type of work. That was like, wow, they've just turned my whole four years at undergrad on its head, you know? And I felt a little bit broken in the first year, even though I, you know, I did okay, did fine. And I remember getting back to London and say, you know, my friends came around uh, to the house before I was supposed to leave to go back to the house. I was like, I, yeah, I was in my twenties, and I actually broke down and started crying in front of my mom, which was the stupidest oh, wow. thing to do. And I said, like, "I don't want to go back. I want to stay. I want to stay in London. I miss my friends. I miss the the the, the way that uh, we design." And my mother, being a, a wonderful Nigerian mother, said, "Shut up." <laughs> so, she didn't slap me, but it's, it's really good. 
So, yeah. so in, in a sense, it was like it was like a slap to wake up and say, "No, you're going back." And so I went back, and I had an amazing year, a really great year. I started to open up, started to understand、uh, the different ranges of of how to design and in all the different mediums, and it seems as I excelled and.、Um, There was, you know, at graduation, which is really, really strange. You know, I was walking up to the dean, going to get my 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 master's diploma, and he stopped. And he's the dean of the art school, and he was. He said, "I'd like to stop for a second in front of the whole school of art, and I'd like to talk about this young gentleman." And I was like, "What? What's going on?" And so, you know, he talked about me and、uh, and what I'm trying to achieve and. Want to go places? I couldn't believe it. And then he told me that I had won a few awards, you know, at Yale and also outside of Yale. You know, the gold medal for AIGA students. And I was like, oh, well, thanks. You know, that's nice to know. And, and my mum and dad were quite shocked about that. So I, I felt as though I sort of completed my my mission, as it were.、Mm-hmm. Um, and I had that sort of one year free as as a、uh, as an immigrant. <laughs> had that one year free、uh, to back then that is to、uh, to do whatever I wanted to. I think they call it OPT now, where the student who's、uh, from abroad has the ability to、uh, go out and get a job, or have I think six months to do whatever they want, and then、uh, six months to go get a job, and then after that you've got to you, you know you got to get that that visa.、Mm-hmm. I moved up to Cambridge, Massachusetts. I, I sort of. Avoided、uh, New York City like the plague. Everybody was moving down there, and I moved up there with my roommate and now best friend George Plesko, up there to a company called Art Technology Group, and they were working on some pretty impressive things. One of my professors was actually two of my professors actually worked there, and it was you know this is the time the internet just come about, but they were doing different things in regards to that, and they were talking about affinity navigation. And then this new term had just come out. Social media was just come out in '97, and understanding the the, the idea of the, the collective mindset and, and the networking and how that can come out. And we were reading different essays from、um, MIT Media Labs about that. And、uh, the owners of the company were two young gentlemen, Jeet Singh and Joe Chung, who came from MIT. And everybody was basically an MIT run. A company, and it was really exciting. It was so much fun, and I started working in the innovations group, dealing with UI/UX aspects and this whole idea of affinity navigation. That is now basically what Facebook is. <laughs> and so back then, we started to innovate. And what the great thing about our technology group is that it started to. Integrate that technology into its product, and thus it sells it to everybody else. And so, you know, to cut a long story short, I was there for about four plus years. And when the sort of like I left just after the sort of the, the crash in two thousand and nineteen ninety nine two thousand, and the company had done inc- exceptionally well. They made Gene Joe multi billionaires. They they were worth five hundred million. Each at the time, I think they're still worth exceptional amount of money.、Uh, didn't make me any cash, but、um, 
but I had the opportunities to do that. And I learned a ton about dynamic content and how to deal with it. I got a job offer from Imaginary Forces New York office. And Imaginary Forces is one of the premier uh, motion graphic companies in America, in the world, actually. And I was super excited because they wanted to attach the idea of animation of motion with dynamic content. So, so it's, you know, the whole idea of taking imagery or typography and it's, and it's been animated, but at the same time, it's been updated. And so that, to me, was, uh, you know, impressive. Of course, you had the, the systems that you'd have on, uh, you know, Market Watch or CBS or, like, or sporting channels. That updating of graphics is, is actually kind of dynamically done. But it was on a larger scale. And this larger scale was, at the time, was the largest screen in America, North America, it was in Times Square, 745 Fifth Avenue in Times Square, and it was the it was the Morgan Stanley Building at the time. I was one of the designers on that project, and I was really that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do these enormous screen-based graphic pieces that were impressive. It wasn't advertising at all. It was just pure design and also art coming together. And this was in 2001, and we were super excited that we were going into a new era, and then September 11th happened, and everything sort of collapsed. Morgan Stanley didn't move into the building. You know, a lot of clients had sort of stopped um, their ad campaigns, you know, and I had to rethink what I wanted to do. You know, I stayed on at uh, Imaginary Forces, and uh, which, was, which was really great. But then I, I sort of moved into, I moved to 2 by 4 Two by four is run by my former professor from Yale, Michael Rock. One of them. Um, there's three of them: Georgie Stout, Susan, and Michael Rock. And it's a very high-end boutique type of design. And I was, I, you know, I loved working with them, working for them. I worked night after night on really amazing projects for Prada, Brooklyn Museum, Studio Museum in Harlem, you know, uh, Lincoln Center, and these were enormous projects. Vitra. I still think today they, they have the most impressive lineup of clients that you'll ever see and mm-hmm. want to work for. You know, I was there for about three and a half years and on a trip to Argentina, it was it was sort of about time that I left. Uh, Michael had sort of felt it and sort of, sort of Susan and Georgie. And I was on a trip with my, my best friend, uh, George, to a wedding of a, a friend of ours in, uh, in, in Argentina, Buenos Aires. And we were just coming up with names for a company that we could start. And George came up with the name Map or the Map Office. And we said, yeah, we're super excited. We're still pretty young. Uh, I was like 31 at the time. And so I started the company. And I said, you know, George, you're going to come on board. And unfortunately, he never did. He was still up in Cambridge, Mass. and still working for our technology group at the time. I sort of built up the, the studio to you know, seven to eight people. And we, we worked on diff- a variety of different things. Uh, a lot of cultural projects for like Student Museum and, and, and Queen's Museum and educational items for UCLA architecture. Did some books. Um, and we did a lot of sort of real estate stuff to feed our bellies, you know. <laughs> you know, we did some experimental work as well on our own and some for other clients. And I think this sort of took, you know, it's caught the eye of one of my former partners here at Pentagram, Lisa Strassfeld, who's who I, I always call is the queen of visualization. 
data visualization in the world today. And she's, she's really great. And um, she told me to come for a, a, a lecture, to give a lecture at Pentagram. And I was like, oh, yeah, I've never been at Pentagram. I, I know pretty much half the partners there. Some of them were actually my, some of my teachers at, uh, at Yale taught, taught a particular lecture or gave a lecture at Yale. So I know them. I've met them at a conference or two. So yeah, yeah, let me go. And uh, I, I just thought it was for just to present my work and, and stuff and also for the food so, <laughs> um, and drink. And so, you know, my, um, my team and my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, we all, you know, jolly, you know, walked over to Pentagram, you know, super excited, had some beers, uh, had, had a ton of food, uh, really <laughs> cracking jokes. And I gave this lecture and people seemed to really like it. And, uh, and then the next minute, I'm having sort of a, a lunch with Paula, Paula Cher, uh, my partner now, and she, over a chicken schnitzel and a salad. I always remember the food that I'm eating. And, <laughs> and uh, she says, why would you like to join Pentagram? And then basically spat out my food. Didn't say yes at first. And uh, the reason why was, you know, this was a recession. And things were hurting, and, and a lot of people would say, "Yeah, join," you know, because they will join Pentagram. They're, they're huge, you know. And it was for me, it was really like I, I kind of just wanted to either, you know, I was, I was up for it was my fifth year. You know, you have a five-year plan. I'm thinking about moving the map office to Britain, maybe making or getting another partner, reducing the size of the team a little because the uh, clients, uh, some of the clients had. had uh, and sort of stop working because they had no money. It's a recession, and go home with uh, with my my, uh, my girlfriend now, my wife Sarah. You know, back to Europe, and that that was really on my mind. Uh, but there's one thing that that I I wanted so much, and it it really was the idea of a larger community, a, a bigger host of of partners to riff off. You know, to talk to on a day to day basis to talk about your anxieties and, and, and your situations and new solutions and, and build a home, you know? And that's what Pentagram provided. That was the thing that made me want to join. It wasn't anything else than that. And so we're up to date. <laughs> that was all. Yeah, that was, that was a lot. What lessons did you learn from, I guess, going from your independent studio at MAP to, that you were able to kind of bring over to Pentagram? I think it's the, that that methodology I have, that sense of that process I have. Um, we were, you know, I'm still trying to hone it. <laughs> Trust me, I started it then. I, I believe in it. It has screwed me around a little bit on, on a couple of jobs. I believe the process is as important as the final product, right? And and even relaying it to another another client, even if that the end result was crap and you could say failed. I still believe in the process of how it was achieved. There was so many things that are, that you can provide for that. There's so many interconnections that you can just pull out of the process and start a new structure with. And I think I learned that from, you know, the likes of being at our technology group and also being primarily also at Yale, um, you know, they, you know, the whole idea of, of introspection and thinking about things produces different sort of pathways of thinking and putting those two things together. It's, you know, slowly but surely trying to achieve one's goals. 
in the way I make things. And if you see the types of projects that I do, you'll understand that. Some of them are weird and wacky, and some of them are incredibly banal, you know, um, or what people perceive to be banal, but then can be taken further and uh, executed again and 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 again the way it's supposed to be. And so that is a successful uh, solution. Yeah. Now, a lot of designers, black designers specifically, look to you as a source of inspiration. I can't tell you how many times I've been in conversations with people or I've heard from people and the first name that comes up when they say something about black designers is your name. It's Eddie Opara. And it's not just for, you know, I mean, it's not just for the work that you do. Of course, it's because you are a black man that is doing this work. How does that make you feel knowing that you kind of occupy that space? (laughs) No, um, I, I, I feel very, you know, if I could blush, as you know, um, <laughs> I, I, I would. I, I think I've got a long way to go. One of my friends who was one of my teachers back at uh, LCP, Joe Caramath, said this thing once, and it's pretty straightforward. You know, Eddie, you'll never stop learning or teaching. You'll never stop learning or teaching yourself. And it's this, this con- until the day you die, child, you know, and at the time I was like, what, 19, 20 years old when he was telling me this. And it, it sticks with you. It sticks with you to say, it sticks with you because, number one, that means that you have to keep yourself humble, right? You can't be a big-headed dickhead about things, right? Or what we call here at Pentagram, sort of like the, you have a black cape. So, you, you know, the whole idea that it's just you, you're the best things in sliced bread kind of bullshit. That should never happen, that you should constantly have this sort of very open mind aspect towards your the way that you work and the way what you create. Things like uh, people like Paula will show you that, you know, she's going to turn 70 uh, this year. And by gum, she's done, she's doing amazing work. Right. So and she's learning all the time. She sits right next to me. Uh, you know, we talk all the time. We're having, we're always having these funny conversations, and I'm learning from her as well, which is fantastic. And for me, you know, I want to sort of relay that to everybody else. You know, don't be myopic. Don't think that this is just there's just one route of doing this type of design. Find those interconnecting pathways and go with it. Just spread your wings, open up, breathe. And I know it's really hard sometimes because clients keep, you know, pressuring you down, but that's where you do your own work as well. You, you, sometimes you have to say, I, I, I don't know if this is a family show, but fuck it, you know, <laughs> let's do your, you know, let's do your own work. And you never know what can come out of it. You never know if a client is actually going to utilize that, the work that you've, you've generated. And that does happen. If you look at all the uh, partners here, we have always have something going on. <laughs> Other than just working with uh, for the men, and that's the thing about Pentagram. You gotta do that. You gotta breathe. You gotta open up, uh, and that's really, really important. What's the project that you do on the side then? There's one project I'll tell you about. I don't know if I'm ever going to finish this damn thing, but um, and it's really quite simple. This is a story I'm going to tell. Right? <laughs> one day, a client really liked the end result on the project. I did not. Right? <laughs> I didn't like it. Didn't like it at all. They they got what they wanted. Checkmate, Eddie. Thank you. 
and they were like, they emailed me, thank you so much, it looks great. And I'm like, mother. So I immediately said, I'm going to do my own work right now. You know, screw them, I'm going to do my own work. And so I started drawing, I just started drawing at my desk. And I always wanted to make a clock. One of my partners, uh, Danny Vile in London, makes these amazing clocks. He's, he's super impressive. And they're all analog, right? And so I drew a circle. <laughs> and then I said to myself, well, what if the clock doesn't have, it's not a standard face? So it's just a ring. So if you're wearing a ring right now, anybody, take the ring off, look at it, and it doesn't have a face. You can actually put your hand, your finger through it, right? Or a pencil, right? And so that's the type of clock I've built. And I've integrated a LED strip inside it. It's uh, totally embedded in it. And this clock can be controlled by Bluetooth on your phone. So you can actually utilize it as an alarm and also a light as well, a light source. So you can decrease the light structure and you can hang it anywhere you want. And so I, I said to myself, well, this is, to me, this is graphic design. <laughs> it's really weird. Uh, or, uh, you know, you could say it's design, but I, I believe in graphic design. I, I was just using my, my you know, the, the way I, I look at graphic design anyway. And, and anybody sees it, and it's next to one of the programmers I had here who was working on it. It's, it's like a centrifuge. So the second hand will spin all the way around with this, like, line, a uh, light of line going through it, like zip, 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 zip. And then you can actually see the short hand and a long hand on this really thin rim. And it's so funny, when you ask somebody to tell the time, they can. And so it's looking at a different way to tell the time. You can set different alarms up. You can do so many different things. You can actually make it into a visualizing system if you wanted to for music, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. That's what I'm working on. Okay. <laughs> How close do you think it is to kind of finishing it, or is it just something you'll always kind of keep tinkering with? Yeah. We we just got the circuitry down. I mean, we had this enormous circuit um, – uh, sorry, um, adapter. We got all that down. We got the circuitry down. We're now sort of developing the rest of the casing casement work for it. So it's going to be probably by the end of the year I'll have a – a, a model that I can shoot photograph and then if I'm lucky if people want you know you can want to buy them I can reproduce them so yeah I just be looking I'm looking at light a lot and looking at time a lot uh, right now well let's switch gears here a little bit I actually have some questions from our audience one of them actually is from someone whom I think you know pretty well Kojo Boateng, he's been on our show. Uh, episode, <laughs> it was episode one twenty five. He wanted to ask you this question: If there's one piece of advice that you would give your twenty year old self, what would it be? Oh my god! Thanks a lot, man, Kojo. I'm going to talk to him today. Um, <laughs> Um, if nobody knows who Kojo is, uh, he's one of my, my best friends. Uh, we met in undergrad. He's one of those young black men that was in that class with me. So I would tell myself to travel, travel more, travel more. And then if you can, find out where Sarah Rosengartner lives before you meet her. <laughs> <laughs> Who's my wife now? 
So yeah, traveling is really is really important. I mean, it, I said it in regards to when I moved I, I moved for those four months to Holland. It's the diversity of it. It's it's the way. It's different ways of learning things. If we keep ourselves cooped up in, and siloed within this in this world in one world, then we're we're not going to know too much. That's what I would say. And then smile and, and basically say you're going to be okay. <laughs> What are you most excited about at the moment? I mean, aside from the clock that you kind of just mentioned, is there anything else that you're really excited about right now? Yeah, voice assistants. So oh. the likes of, you know, I bought Siri, what, like, yeah, two and a half years ago, we, we started building a, a voice uh, assistant uh, as well for a school up in Binghamton, New York, to, uh, we're taking all their, taking all their uh, sustainable data, you know, heat, water, air conditioning, you name it, uh, solar panels and all that kind of stuff, and combining it into a system where kids can actually understand energy usage. And we created an interface, you could say a, a visual character more than an interface, for those kids to learn. And this character is called Arthur. So it's a little bit like the nest, but with a face. And, and it also gives the kids uh, ways to ask questions about maths and English. And so maybe I'm wrong about this, but I came to the conclusion that UI user interfaces definitely are going to be changing. Um, they're not going to have the menu systems that we think they are going to have. We're going to go back to what people may call pure design, you know, have different compositions or different faces that are uh, incredibly ambient and interesting, very intriguing. And, and it was sort of like an aha moment uh, where, to be absolutely honest, you don't need to be pressing something anymore or typing something anymore. You're just talking and you're giving, you're giving back visual uh, information in a very sort of interactive and passive manner. I thought that that was totally genius. And I, I think that's, that's where I am. And, and as soon as uh, artificial intelligence comes in, the graphic design is going to blow up. In a good way, you think? Good way. In a good way. So as I've heard you talk about, you know, your time in London, your time in Holland and, and everything, and of course, coming over here to the U.S., it sounds like you've done, of course, very well professionally. You're here at, here at, at Pentagram. I have another question here from Sella Lewis, who is, uh, she's one of our design writers as well as someone who we've had on the show. And she wanted to know, have you ever faced professional failure? And if so, how? Yes, I have. Hopefully I can actually describe my type of uh, professional failure uh, clearly enough and how one resolves that. Uh, yeah, I have um, had that issue occur. When it has occurred, it was really about not having the right types of personnel on my team. And also they weren't designers. They were programmers. I do have, uh, I do use different types of programmers and these guys were on my team and they really were very naive and didn't really listen to the, my associate partners who were sort of working on these different projects. And it just got to the point where um, the client on, on a few occasions was just saying, you know, like, we really love you guys, but this is just not happening. You sort of basically disrupted our whole, it was basically a couple of websites uh, you sort of destroyed our, our launch and uh, things aren't working. This is embarrassment. And uh, 
and that relationship that I had with that uh, particular client was, I think it was like 10 to 12 years long, you know, and uh, it just got to a point where um, I think they just pushed over the edge. And, you know, in my eyes, I didn't want to defend the uh, developers that I had at all. And, I, you know, totally submitted to the client and saying, yes, you know, this is our fault. This is what we have to rectify. And in my eyes, that was a failure. And, I, and, and now I do not have that relationship anymore. And they're very simple things that could have been done to rectify these particular issues by those uh, persons that I will not name. But yet they just didn't want to listen to it. And I feel as though there was a very sort of clear divide between design and development that uh, there were two different cultures that were never really intermingling as, as best as I wanted them to. That was that. You know, I have had other issues in regards to aspects of just, you know, printing mistakes, uh, not many at all uh, through my my years. And uh, that, to me, also feels like a failure. But there's also this aspect of failure being good and learning from failures and uh, never doing the same thing twice. And in regards to design, yeah, there's certain things that I've, I've uh, you know, that we've worked on and we've uh, worked through the processes and to a certain degree, the uh, end results were not what we expected. Whether that is a failure or not, and that's another thing, but what we try to do is fail, you know, the, the common thing to do is fail fast. And so we try to prototype as much as we can. And now we that's where we stop. We do not go further than creating prototypes for different clients. What we normally do is then we take those prototypes and elements and then we move them over to another company that deals with, that specializes in either the production of those particular elements rather than what we doing it in-house. So I, I know hopefully that's answered the question. I know that there's, uh, there's so many different ways to look at the aspects of failure. What would you have become if you didn't become a designer? When I was 15, I wanted to become an architect. And then I worked in a, you know, for a summer, I worked in an architectural office. I really actually really liked it. And then I walked up to one of the partners there. It was a very small studio. It was just me, basically me and, 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 and the partners, nobody in, in between. I asked him, like, how long does it take to become an architect? I mean, I don't think I realized this before. And he said, it could take some time. And he, he taught, walked me through all the whole process. And I just said, Jesus, that, that's way too long. <laughs> <laughs> I started to, you know, I think my mind rethink what I wanted to do. I just did not want to do that. And then before that, I think it was, I used to love Indiana Jones movies and I wanted to be an archaeologist. And then before that, because I'm, I'm Catholic and I went to Jesuit school, uh, I think, you know, when, when you're six, you know, I wanted to be a priest and you didn't realize that, you know, there were girls and... <laughs> <laughs> You know, and, and uh, other sort of uh, um, things that uh, priests can't do. So I no. <laughs> didn't want to become one of them. Right. <laughs> no, absolutely not. But I do have a, a very good friend that is a priest. Yeah. How do you find the quiet time to get inspired? Because it sounds like you're doing a lot, of course, with the work you're doing at Pentagram, but I know you also speak pretty much internationally. Yes. That's that a good point. I actually used to do this a fair bit. And if my mother listens to this, she's going to be really upset. So um, I used to go to mass on a Sunday and, you know, you'd be listening, but you actually, I'm, in my head, I'm actually designing things, thinking about things, thinking about how to 
come up with different ideas. And, and then to be absolutely honest, it's, it's one of the best places to go, you know, like going into a church, sitting down, very quiet, and thinking. Because everywhere else I, I walk, you know, you know, there's just hustle and bustle. This is New York City, and there's just way too many things going on. You know, now I have two kids, and you, you can't find the time. Um, it's, it's, it's impossible. I think that's why I have to come up with an entirely new regime of actually thinking through ideas. Uh, you know, you have to think on your, on your feet, definitely. But it would be wonderful to get that time back um, that I, I've lost to really think about the work that I'm doing, yeah. What do you want to see more of from the design community? Well, design community is enormous, number one. So there's so many different facets to it and perspectives for it to and endeavors to to be achieved. And so if it was the, you know, if I take the graphic design community, you know, number one is, you know, I know this is a, a very sort of trend word right now, but it's incredibly important that it should never be a trend word, is diversity. There's a diversification of, of designers and a better understanding that of cultures. And one of the things I always hate is when a, uh, I, I get uh, a commentator uh, asking me a question about, not from your point of view, but others, where do you think design uh, really is? And then, you know, you, you talk about all these particular westernized trends and all this kind of stuff. But when 90% of the world doesn't really know what design is, you know, and we're living in this wonderful bubble of ours, thinking that everybody else knows what it is and knows what to do with it. And it's absolutely, absolutely incorrect. So I think, you know, diversification of, of understanding and communicating with the rest of the world diversification of designers seeing more uh, minority designers in positions of you could say power yes and, and say uh, and I'm not stating that because I'm, I'm on this particular program I think I, I really do mean it it's really important and another thing that I've talked about and I remember a few years back I, I, I went to this uh, I had to give a lecture in Canada on design thinking I think I had 30 minutes to talk and I did everything in 15 and sort of actually dropped the mic was design criticism. I don't know if people really understand what it is. And also the idea of design writing is important. If you want to be taken seriously in this world and actually have a historical document, no matter what, you know, this is where social media and Facebook are you know, aside and you want people to be educated, you need to know how to write. You need to also know how to talk correctly about the subject matters that you're dealing with. And I believe graphic design has a major issue here. You know, there are very rare personalities in this world that can actually do this in our area. And one of them is my partner, Michael Barut. He does it exceptionally well. Um, he loves writing, even though he says it's very hard for him to do it. He has his own way of writing. And, and so... I think that is an important factor that we uh, forego as designers. We don't think that we need to do it. I think that we do need to do it. And it's important because people start to notice. It's not the sense of just perception. They start to rationalize. They start to understand what you're trying to say. And then they start to come to you for more answers. Hmm. And that's incredible. But one of the issues I do have uh, are these sort of blog-type sites that sort of pop up 
start talking about a, a design, whatever design of an identity or, or whatever it is, and they give a very short sort of summary of it, and then they sort of feed it to the wolves. And the, the wolves are the, the sort of commentary that you see below with these sort of sound bites of bullshit. I find that to be uneducated uh, personalities doing that. It doesn't, it takes graphic design and design into the wrong areas. We need to look, think about it, stop it, and do something different because it, it's destroying who we are. Sounds like you're taking shots at somebody with that. <laughs> I have done this. Yeah, I, I did it. I did it in front of uh, many, many people. Um, there was somebody I did take a shot at. It's not just them. I think there's others that uh, that they know who they are. And we as designers need to wake up to this. I believe that this is a serious profession, which we can play and express ourselves, absolutely, but it's also incredibly serious, the way we communicate with people, and also the way we transform our lives, our lives, and relay it to others, and to be taken seriously in front of a CEO or a CMO. You need to know how to speak and, and relay information incredibly eloquently, and writing is one of those methods to do that. So you mentioned, I'm sorry, you, you just started talking about some things there that I, I now want to, I guess, expand upon a little bit. So you mentioned, you know, wanting to see more minority designers in positions of power. And that got me to thinking, ironically enough, about the Oscars. Did you see the, the Oscars this year? Yeah, I, I didn't. I, I stopped watching the Oscars about five years ago. <laughs> I, I, but I got the gist when I read the newspapers. Uh, okay, so so you probably know where I'm going with this. So <laughs> Frances McDormand, she wins for Best Actress for three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. And she gives this kind of, you know, impassioned speech about, similarly about, you know, needing to see more diversity in the industry, particularly for women. And then at the end of her speech, she mentions something about an inclusion writer, which I think is something that in the design and certainly in the tech community – has been around for a while. I don't think it's had that specific term. You know, there have been people that have been sort of, I don't know, I guess letting other organizations know that, hey, if you want me to speak and there's not this much diversity on the panel or this much diversity in the speaker roster, then I'm not going to be available, you know, that sort of thing. I'm curious to kind of know what things are you doing to kind of help out the next generation of designers? Well, that's, that's, that's a good point. I don't think I'm doing enough. There was one thing I did, and it was by accident. I think it was a bunch of uh, students. I think it's from Boise State, minority. I, I, hopefully I got the, the name of the university correct. They were a minority uh, Zion group that wanted to go to Harvard for uh, of lectures, to listen to the lectures. And they, they were trying to put some travel. They didn't have enough money for traveling in this group. So... They put a, a sort of a GoFundMe type of thing together to be funded and wasn't really getting too far. I, I looked at it, I was really worried and I really wanted them to go. And so I put some money in and they were, they were grateful for that. And that, that's all I could do at that moment in time, you know, because they brought it to the fourth. They brought it towards my knowledge and it was by accident. That I, I looked at this and I said, yes, yes, this needs to happen. And when I was at the AIJ conference uh, last year in Minneapolis, uh, a lady came up to me and said, thank you very much for this. And, and, and you know, I, I was sort of, again, this sort of like blushy type of person, a person 
And I said, you know, no, don't worry. I just really wanted to make sure that, you know, they have this opportunity to go to one the, the group, basically, you know, apart from maybe Cambridge with the greatest university on the planet and listen to some great, powerful people to be inspired. That's important. Apart from that, I've just recently talked about the aspects of, of diversity, of being a black designer, uh, and the empowerment of being one in a lecture very recently, I think it was uh, last year, end of last year. And that was sort of rewarding. I sort of gave my sort of points and it was about being being black, but also minority as in, in the aspects of gender as well. For uh, you know, I was talking about uh, the aspects of women and what we've had to deal with through the years. You know, So I got different stories from uh, different personalities that are in graphic design to talk about them and sort of start to educate the audience in regards to our needs and wants and how to be empowered better. And I feel as though those are the types of lectures that I should be doing more often. I rarely talk about my work and integrating my own thoughts or, um, into the work that I'm doing that uh, you know, that sort of resonates. So as being a black man, how does one sort of integrate one's ideals or, or cultural aspects towards social aspects towards the work that you're doing? And it, it just depends upon the work that you're creating for that particular client, if, you, if that's feasible or not. And it's very, it's incredibly rare. It doesn't really happen. So that's yet to happen so much for me based on the, the types of clients that I actually have. And yeah, yeah, I'd like to do more. Well, that's a failure right there. <laughs> well, I think, you know, if there's anyone that can do it, it's it's you. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I definitely have been, um, I've had my head shoved in a, in a hole for a while. And I think now, recently, I've, I've, uh, I've, I've brought it up for some air and I've, I've looked at the landscape and I said, oh, shit, something has to happen. So, yes, <laughs> I, do, I need to do more. And, and, I mean, when I ask this, I'm not trying to, like, call you to the carpet or anything like that. So hopefully for people that are listening, they don't think that I'm trying to, like, take you to task or anything. But I'm I'm curious because I, I sort of asked the same question to, uh, to Gail Anderson when I had her on the show last year. You know, uh, people yeah. know of her and know of you in these kind of, I don't know, almost omnipotent design knowledge sorts of ways. You know, when people think of black designers – you two yeah. tend to be the ones that folks think about. And so I know that I interact with a lot of black designers, of course, you know, through the show and, you yeah. know, through other means and stuff. And they're always <laughs> dropping both of your names as inspiration. And so I'm just kind of curious, like you all kind of have an idea of how much that means in terms of, you know, even just speaking up about these same sorts of issues. You know, in all honesty, in my naivety, no, I, I really hadn't really thought about it in that particular way, and I, I'm very uh, heartened by what I what what you're saying, and um, it's, it's sort of putting things in a different perspective for me, a different type of light, definitely. So, yeah. You briefly mentioned your kids earlier. Do they want to go into design like you? My wife thinks so. Thinks one of them would be um, his name is Jacob. He's uh, he's six going on seven. He, he has a particular eye that she thinks uh, is uh, he'd probably become a designer. Actually, Paula Cher thinks he he might also. Uh, it's just 
things that he thinks about. He loves maps. Incredible. When he was three, and this is really, really strange, he scared his, his teachers by asking one of them, where does she live, uh, you know, in, in New York City? And uh, she told him, and then he said, oh, you live on this line at this stop. And going <laughs> four, and she she told us this, and she, we were like, yeah, he's he really likes maps a lot, and he likes directions and and, and dealing with them. And and Paula told me that she, you know, as you know, she she has a love of maps, and uh, her is a cartographer, and that she said there's an, a, a certain innate ability to understand how to draw different pathways and design those particular pathways and figure them out and it's sort of cognitive thought processes that uh, not many people actually have. But she says she had it, I think, through testing. And I, we've never got the kid tested yet. And she said, that's why I became a designer. And, and then she said, and I think Jakob's going to be one too. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> we'll see he's a wisecracker as well so um okay. we'll, we'll see what he becomes he's only six and the other one you know is he's, he's only three so where do you see yourself in the next five years can you tell can we uh can we say this in the next five years you know <laughs> going and echoing one just like i never know I normally have a plan, and then that plan doesn't work out. <laughs> something, else, something good always happens. It's like, oh, that, that happened instead. Okay, I'll just do that. <laughs> so I really don't know what I would uh, what I would would like to have occur. I'm trying to work on this idea of language, You're like what what type of the range of work that I do, but they, within that range. How can I define a language that is appropriate for me to deal with? And that language may have different levels and layers to it, right? It's a work in progress. And I'd like to get within five years to, you know, potentially halfway of understanding that language really well. So I can actually be more eloquent when I sort of talk about who I am and what I'm trying to achieve, and I think this is very hard. A lot of people think it's um, they, they, they have it in the bag, but the, the idea of developing a language, I would say a pedagogy, a pedagogical sort of package of studying oneself and, and relaying it to others takes a lifetime, you know? And I'm always trying to observe why I, I, I choose the jobs that I do and then design it the way I did. There's got to be a pattern. And, and uh, I'm trying to look for that pattern. Some people may say, oh, I've got that pattern when I first started uh, as a designer. But I, I really truly think that's the case. Somebody like me needs to have that type of thing happen in their life. Well, Eddie, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Uh, my work can be found on uh, pentagram.com. Um, the major problem is it's never really highlighted as my, my work. We, we don't normally do that. You can go to the news section and sort of try and filter out items there. Pinterest is not good. Uh, <laughs> I sometimes go on there to see what people have put up, and it just doesn't have context. It's just a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of shit that's just been plonked there. So I, I would say that that would be the uh, pentagram would be the best place to go. I, I'm a bit of a secret guy, and, and um, I don't normally put all the work that I do 
up. I mean, nobody really does, but trust me, my my designers are always telling me, yeah, you got to put that piece up, and they're always they're forcing me to to do that more, and they're also forcing I would say forcing me to do more you know, awards. I don't like awards. I really don't. <laughs> You know, they seem to like them, and I think I know why because they, they they're winning them. So, um, <laughs> you know, just Google me, and you'll find some some videos. Uh, I think videos on, uh, on YouTube about what I do and uh, some presentations that I've given. Well, Eddie Opar, I want to thank you so much for taking time out to to come on the show. As I said to you before. Uh, you have been, without a doubt, the most requested person uh, oh my, to have on the show. I really, I really can't believe this for real. You know, um, I'm very honoured um, to hear that. Um, it's been a pleasure, Maurice. Uh, um, you know, uh, hopefully, this all makes sense to people. If it doesn't, um, you can um, you can you can try and email me at opara at pentagram.com. Um, not for any not for any jobs. Just you know, if you want to know more information, I'd be glad to um, to try and write back to people if they have certain questions that are for me. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, I just want to uh, thank you for coming on the show. I, I really think that you had a lot to say around, not just around your work, but I think you also had a lot to share just about who you are as a person. I think that, you know, certainly for some designers, when they get to a certain level in their career, there seems to be the separation between uh, the personal and the professional. Uh, and I think that, you know, through this interview, you've done a really good job of kind of mixing the two. So people have gotten kind of a more well-rounded look at, at who Eddie Opara is as a person and not just as, you know, this lionized designer that people know about. So, yeah, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Eddie Opara and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Eddie and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Facebook designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. But what's it like actually working there? You know, everything that Facebook designs is done at scale, so design critiques, metrics, and other factors are a huge part of how they work. Does that sound interesting to you? If so, then learn more about Facebook design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. From games to art to music and hardware, Glitch is flexible enough to create some really powerful tools. You know, they just came out with a bunch of new features and they're now out of beta, so you can even use it for work or learn how to code. The possibilities are endless. So what will you create today? Get started at Glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up today for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. Again, that's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. 
They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well. MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, then please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps more people learn about the show here in the U.S. and internationally. It helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings there for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, if you're listening to this and you want to hear next week's episode early, then you should become our patron over at Patreon. You know, now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 per month, you can get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.